This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, today we are here with Tanana Reeve Dew, author of Last Stop on Route 9. Tanana Reeve, how are you? I am excited. How are you? I'm excited as well. I've wanted you on this podcast for the longest time, so I'm so thrilled to finally have you here and have a story of yours on the show. Um, Just over the moon about it. And congrats to you on the glow up, you know. Thank you. And and more people hearing about it. Uh, Audio is king right now. Yeah, you know, I'm hoping that continues for a little while and I get Mm -hmm. to make some bank off of it for sure. So so I have a few questions for you today. I want to first talk about what your inspiration is for Last Stop on Route 9. There is a story behind the story. Uh, When I was in college, I wrote a short story called Last Stop on Route 9, which was very much emblematic of the majority white college I was attending and the canon I was being taught. So it was basically a story about a white dude who shows up at a gas station and he's sick. And I think that was the whole story. You know, it was like one of these... (laughs) 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 I'm not trying to like diss... MFA style writing workshops or anything like that. I learned a lot of beautiful craft while I was studying um, in undergraduate at Northwestern, but I was reading a lot of white male writers. Right. And somehow in my head, I confused being a writer with writing about white men, you know? Yeah. And hopefully I'm one of the last generation of writers of color to do that. I know that's a com. that was a common. Oh, yeah. For yeah, for sure. Era, but so yeah, it was like this little epiphany story and he's sick and he shows up at a gas station. So when I had an opportunity to write a story about hexing and conjuring, uh, I decided I was going to reclaim Last Stop on Route 9 as the writer I am today. And, I w- and the writer I am today is a black horror writer. So takes some of the elements of the original story, Deserted Road, The Last Stop, but that's where they, basically where the similarities end. So instead I transported it to my little fictitious town of Gracetown, Florida. I've set several stories there um, for my short story collection, Ghost Summer. And it's a town where magical things happen, especially relating to children. And sometimes outsiders get caught up in, in the web of magic. And this is one of those, an outsider comes to Gracetown and gets caught up in the web of magic stories. And I wanted to sort of experiment with this idea of racism as the monster, right? So if racism is the monster, what does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? And for a lot of us, listen, um, I'm watching Lovecraft Country and those shots of a car it's set in the 1950s, traveling those deserted Southern roads. Woo, I'm scary. scared. <laughs> That's <laughs> I'm terrifying. Scared. I'm scared before the police show up, you know. Right. I mean, I'm as scared of the police as I am of the monster, maybe more, you know. Right. So, so I wanted to, like, take that. These people are, and this kind of was based on a true story. When my mother passed away um, in 2012, she she lived in the rural town of Quincy, Florida. So a lot of the inspiration for this story and for my novel with the reformatory, which is also set in Gracetown, 
is from visits to my mom and dad and driving on these deserted roads and the red clay soil and the ditches on the side of the road and the dodgy looking gas station where you're afraid to stop. Looks like the pumps are from 1950. You know, all that, the tobacco shacks, you know, all that <laughs> stuff is real. That stuff is mm -hmm. just like still standing oh, yeah. around. So of course it has been a lot of fodder for my short stories, keying in on the things that scare black folks. So yeah. being isolated is a big fear, especially if you're isolated and you think you may be surrounded by people who don't like you. And the way it goes back to my mother's death is that um, there was a wake at a friend of hers uh, and it was quite a drive, you know, from where the funeral took place. And it was, again, deserted. I mean, basically, oh, just like in the story. A funeral. <laughs> ah, yeah, <laughs> imagine that. And we got lost, you know, we were out and, and Steve, my husband, Stephen Barnes was driving and, and we had my son, uh, Jason with us and, and no street signs, you know, just out in the middle of nowhere, don't know where you are. And so we came to a driveway where we thought about pulling in to ask for directions. It actually led to like a little cul-de-sac. It looked like there were three buildings sort of near each other in this cul-de-sac. But then we noticed on a flagpole, a giant Confederate flag. Oh no. And we were like, Oh, hell <laughs> <laughs> it is a full size flagpole flag. And right. Like, okay. like that's worse than one in the bedroom window. <laughs> exactly. We will not be stopping for directions here. No, no, not stopping for nothing. <laughs> right. So that's where a lot of my horror stories come from is true life incidents where um, as, as a writer once put it in a lecture about screenwriting, you turn it up to 11, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. okay, so you amplify it beyond even the real life horror to like, what is it at 11 if you add a supernatural element? So this idea of a, a cursed ground, um, racism that is so old that it has withstood the test of time, like mm -hmm. racism that is like through this veil as if time has stood still, which is what, frankly, we are experiencing all over the country in a lot of cases, yes. you know, where people are feeling emboldened to let those flags fly, even if mm -hmm. it's not literally that flag, it's, it's their attitudes. It's right. the way they, t I see it on social media every day, people being verbally abused uh, by racists. Right. So in an era like this, I think it's especially important to examine racism as the monster and I, I also had to tie in that little mass incarceration piece because one of the things that Kai remembers, he's never, he's, his father never let him go to Gracetown, but the reason his father hated Gracetown was because he was in the reformatory that I actually wrote a whole novel about. Um, and that experience soured him on this, this town. And it's about generational trauma. Mm -hmm. It's about the incarceration of young people, especially, which is just unconscionable. To me, right. I feel like that's the low-hanging fruit in prison abolition is let's start with juvenile so-called justice and see, hmm, maybe some programs, right? you know, might, might be in order rather than locking children up Yeah, <laughs> for, <laughs> for truancy, uh, for things that aren't even crimes for adults. It's just right. so uh, deadened ourselves to what it means to put a human being in a cage that our society considers it acceptable to lock children up. So it's no coincidence then that I'm mentioning the reformatory because I think that's one of the most obvious ghosts left over from Jim Crow is our mass incarceration system reaching into our homes to literally steal our children out of their beds. Right. And everything in this story is just sort of uh, the supernatural manifestations of that, that real life horror is being manifested by the noises, the sights, the sounds, the dogs, all of it. Right. So before we move on real quick, you said you wrote a book about the reformatory. Can you tell everybody what the name of that book is? Oh yeah, it's called The Reformatory. And, oh, well, you know, I, right? How have I not heard of this one? <laughs> I published it. it. It hasn't come out yet. Um, oh, sorry. okay. I haven't, published I haven't heard it. <laughs> I just literally finished it. And pretty soon I'm going to have some, uh, Hollywood news about it. It's like it'll oh, be the first time I ever optioned a book before it was published even. It hasn't even wow. been sold, much less has it been published. It hasn't even been sold yet, but it's finished. And these producers read it and loved it. And um, just 
for a quick background, the reason I, I wrote that book is because it's based on the Dozier School for Boys in Mariana, Florida, which coincidentally is the same book that Colson Whitehead, or rather the same uh, facility that Colson Whitehead was uh, fictionalizing in his book, The Nickel Boys, which won a Pulitzer Prize. And we were working on these books at the same time. I didn't know about his book, um, and I'm assuming he didn't know about my book, but his came out first. And thank God it doesn't have any ghosts. <laughs> right? <laughs> You'd have been screwed. <laughs> oh my gosh. Underground Railroad was magical realism, so it could yeah. have gone that way. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And I was, I don't, you know, I don't mind admitting it, because I think all writers need to hear this story. I was, I was so nervous. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm a huge Wilson Whitehead fan. I tweeted yeah. it without even reading the article. And then someone told me, uh, oh, are you writing about this school? <laughs> and that, that is the last thing any writer ever wants to hear like ever oh, yeah. wants to hear um, oh yeah and even, even without ghosts in his and I haven't read it yet I, maybe I will after my book comes out I just haven't been able to bring myself to read it yet for fear that it's too similar but um yeah my my agent talked me off the uh, the ledge, so to speak, and and encouraged me to keep going with it. That it didn't, you know. And frankly, I was just honestly trying to find excuses not to finish it. <laughs> Aren't we all though? <laughs> yeah, because this was writers. Are, yeah, <laughs> seven years to write it, and the oh, hardest wow. aspect was the research, coupled with having to actually be at this reformatory with my oh. little twelve-year-old protagonist. Oh wow! Yeah, it's a, so it's a really simple storyline. It's a twelve-year-old. Um, um, black boy in Jim Crow, Florida, gets sentenced to this haunted reformatory, and it's about his sister's efforts to free him, you know, through whatever mm -hmm. limited means she has on the outside, while he's discovering what his relationship is with these ghosts on the inside, and that the worst that horror in the story is not about the Haynes. That's oh no! That <laughs> yeah, that's never the worst part. Never the worst of the part. story. So, is that book going to be a middle grade book, or is it just an adult? Oh no no. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> It's an adult book. I, okay. I, I really um, restrained myself in terms of some of the depictions of violence because it was just already too difficult to put myself there. And also, I really feel like, and this is a question, you know, frankly, a lot of horror creators are going to have to grapple with, is this question of violence against Black bodies in our work. Um, I think Jordan Peele has handled this very well in Get Out and Us so far. Um, and I, I have high expectations for Candyman as well, sort of refocusing that violence in the way it should have gone in the original Candyman, right. as, as opposed to Candyman terrorizing uh, the residents of a, the, the black residents of a, you know, the inner city in Cabrini Green. But this is, you know, so much horror is about violence, but we as black horror creators are really going to have to balance the trauma that our readers are already feeling about the violence in their social media, in their families, in their lives, with escapism, because horror is supposed to be escapism, but if it's too violent, if it's, if it's flagrantly sort of posing Black bodies and in and, and ways that we see them posed in our social media, that is not escapism anymore. So we have to really think about how to create horror, um, I think, in more thoughtful ways than the slasher model. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Now you've touched on this a couple of times where you talked a little bit about like what scares a black person might be different than what scares everyone else, you know, mentioned like being in the country on a road, you know, Confederate flag flying on a flagpole, you know, a white person may not find that very frightening, but a black person is going to find that terrifying. Yeah. So when you are writing, are you focused on now we'll say now you know we're not going to talk about you know some of your past work right now but would you say that you're more focused on the black experience right now in terms of horror in your absolutely writing? absolutely and frankly always have been you know i was very very blessed to begin publishing in the 90s when black literature was really demonstrating to the publishing industry, I think they would say for the first time, uh, I don't think that's true, but that Black people loved reading, you know, that they would right. have book clubs around it. So a lot of us, Tina McElroy, Anza, Connie Briscoe, uh, Elin Harris, uh, L.A. Banks, you know, a lot of us got our wings to, to soar in the 90s, which had room not just for Christian fiction or, you know, traditional literary fiction, but actually was expansive enough to include 
speculative work, including horror. And I, I feel so blessed that I was able to come of age then. But then there was this dry spell, you know, and, and frankly, my life might have been easier if I'd been able to write something other than horror. Uh, because as much as I have had such faithful fans who love my work, they have to argue sometimes, uh, at least in the past, to get my books read at their book club because they, there was a misconception that they would be inviting in negative energy or even satanic energy. Some of my book covers, I don't blame them, you know. <laughs> there was one cover for The Living Blood and hardcover that was this guy's uh, figure all covered in these. As I think about it now, I, I definitely was influenced by Candyman. That book was The Living Blood. And readers would take the cover off, you know, to read the book. So, and, 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 you know, there were questions of Christianity and Christ's blood and all this kind of stuff. So I, I feel like readers had to fight sometimes to ex expand my readership to their circles, their reading groups, their family members. And now in the era of Jordan Peele, I feel like, and get out more and Lovecraft Country, you know, like people saying, I didn't think I liked horror, but. And it's kind of the same thing with science fiction. People say, I didn't think I liked science fiction. And then I read Octavia Butler. Right. So I, it's not that I, I intend to exclude anyone. And one of the great things about this Black Lives Matter era is that more non-Black readers are literally seeking out work by what they call own voices, you know, marginalized writers, Black writers, and realizing that they're suffering for the lack of variety. They're suffering for the lack of novelty. So yeah, come meet us. But at the same time, I have always written just, not always, okay, I already told them myself. When I was <laughs> in graduate school, I realized I was writing white characters. And it wasn't, I made it, I've met writers who do it intentionally and they say, well, for marketing purposes, but it was not even that for me. It was just like, I literally erased myself. Right. You didn't even think to write anybody else. Right. Because yeah. it didn't matter, you know, and when I started my first novel, The Between, which was horror, it's alternate realities and that kind of thing, uh, I didn't have any role models. I hadn't even read an Octavia Butler novel at the time. I was, I don't even know what made me think I could do it, but I loved Stephen King and I loved Toni Morrison. And then I read Gloria Naylor's Mama Day, which had some metaphysical aspects. And I was like, oh, that okay I could try to be that because because Gloria Naylor is a very respected writer but she's also writing about the metaphysical and I also interviewed Anne Rice when I was reporter for the Miami Herald I was still struggling with this you know because people denigrated her for writing about vampires and she in the interview she said look my books are taught in universities and it was almost as if the floodgates opened so I went from literally writing short stories and even a almost novel-length manuscript about white people to overnight starting the between, which was not just embracing myself and my blackness, but was embracing myself as a genre writer who was not just going to be writing stories and not to denigrate anybody who does contemporary realism about characters having epiphanies and realizations and small moments. It was gonna be about big, big, big stuff. Life, death, immortality, survival. That's the one component that I think is the thread through all horror. For, and the thing that really appeals to me is survival behaviors. And characters sometimes will fail. And those are the bad examples. That trip and fall character, don't let that be you. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay? No, I'm not looking for that trip and fall character. I'm looking for that character who is going to pick up a weapon, who's going to learn how to fight. It's like, oh, there are demons? Bet. Let me figure out how to kick your ass. <laughs> right. I'm not going to sit here and trip and fall and run up the stairs <laughs> or run down to the basement like where I'm going to be blocked in. Hello? Is anybody there? No. <laughs> don't no. be that one. <laughs> no. You are on your own. You got to pick you up that stick and fight. <laughs> Maybe don't be so damn curious about the noise. Right. Or at least if you're going to investigate the noise, pick out, like I was in an Airbnb uh, in the cabin, wooded. I wouldn't say it was the woods, but it was a wooded neighborhood. It was the closest I could get to the woods and have internet. Yeah. <laughs> and the first night I heard this noise, like, I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> I picked up a kitchen knife. I'm Good. walking through the house and it was an air freshener. <laughs> You know, like an automated mechanical air freshener. Like I was like, oh shoot. 
but you know what you know what it's better to walk around ready to attack an air freshener with a knife than walk around not know what it is and it is something dangerous and look at you here you are without a weapon and now you look silly like i was telling a friend the other day that was like you know what i hope that i don't die to like some horror trope or something because that would be like super embarrassing as a horror writer (laughs) like i went to investigate something without a weapon and you know boom Uh, now i'm dead like that would be that would be like the worst way for a horror writer to die it would be like i I crashed my car trying to run away for something or (laughs) 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 or whatever you know i couldn't run fast enough right but but I really feel like the, the survival behavior aspect of it is one of the things that's so appealing to Black horror fans. Uh, and the other side of that coin is to be able to exorcise our actual trauma in a way that feels less dangerous and less mm-hmm. scary. You know, because yeah. I'm not afraid of zombies and demons. There's no horror trope that I'm actually afraid of as much as I'm afraid of seeing a police light in my rearview mirror. Or if my son is out with his friends wondering what's going to happen. I mean, nothing comes close. So horror is fun to me because I don't, I don't believe in zombies. Right. <laughs> demons. And if there are ghosts, I mean, I'm, I'm a little on the fence about ghosts. Yeah. I have heard so many earnest stories from intelligent people that I'm not arrogant enough to, to discount them, but I can honestly say, I don't think I've ever had an experience unless it was in a dream. And unfortunately in dreams, it's hard to tell the difference between a, a visit right. and a dream. Right. Is your brain making it up or yeah. is it real? Yeah. I mean, I agree that, you know, especially with black horror, I think that there are far scarier things than zombies and demons and ghosts. But I also find it interesting that at least in the South, I can't speak for, um, black culture in the north but in the south it is very much centered around christianity and you know if you're into horror you know like you were saying with the book club you know they were having a hard time getting those books approved i mean it's it's the same kind of thing still mm. um you know here in the south where you know if you're black and you like horror people in your family kind of look at you like don't be messing <laughs> with them demons like i told you about that i'm gonna pray for you at church <laughs> you know all of that and I feel like as a culture, we are still grappling with a lot of the effects of Americanized Christianity and the way that it was twisted to um, support this idea that Black people should be slaves. And we're still kind of intertwined with that Mm. in a lot of ways. And we're in a lot of ways afraid to let go because we need that hope and and that um, support that religion provides us because the real world is so scary exactly for us that we can't quite let that go but at the same time it's like also holding us back in a lot of ways is my opinion on the subject well you know um there are many many good churches and christians out there oh Um, yeah many in my own family but at the same time unfortunately it's almost a rite of passage where you have sometimes young people especially just have to extricate themselves because of the homophobia yeah in white churches because of the bigotry you know not all of them but you know what i'm saying there's a a movement in american christianity um evangelism especially where that bigotry is so deeply embedded in in the notion of faith that I feel like I have to like deprogram my son if he's you know yeah. <laughs> going to a church group because I know he's going to be hearing things that I do not agree with right and then yeah. I feel like he is going to have to sort of make his own decisions about this but don't think God said this right in fact Jesus didn't say a damn thing about homosexuality if you want to really get down with it you know what I mean right. so yeah, this is like and the human influence on the creation of the gospels and all that stuff. But that's sort of, you know, that's a difficult conversation. Um, And I I feel bad for people who do feel that distance. Uh, Thank goodness for progressive churches. I think if people look long enough, they will find them. But also at the very least, you know, for me, it's that praise music. Um, There's been, I've been feeling grief. A lot of us have been feeling grief. Uh, Chadwick Boseman's death, uh, which, you know, was a big blow to a lot of us, not just because he was fine actor but because that role had brought so much joy and it uplifted us so much that it feels like in the midst of a pandemic 
we are losing everything, you know, yeah. like just that feeling of everything building. And man, I had to break out my gospel piano and it, you know, that sounds like God to me. Yeah. It brings me comfort where I don't have to filter out. Okay. I believe everything the pastor said up to that. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cause you're sitting there listening to the sermon thinking, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, oh, wait, 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 hold up. <laughs> Echo, because that part right there, yeah. Right, and, you know, and everybody does it. I think the lie people tell is that Christians don't sit there and edit it out. It, like, everybody right. has, you know, once I read in a history book once that even Dr. King had had questions about the resurrection, I was like, you know what, Christians- If Dr. King had questions. <laughs> we all think and feel the same, believe the same thing. We need to stop pretending that, that we're all nodding and really in agreement, you know, and really accept that just like you are editing, your neighbor is editing. You know what I mean? That's, that faith is a personal journey and it is filtered through the human hand and you have to figure out what you believe. Exactly. That's why I've heard 50%, 50 I've heard, and I'll stop after this, but I've heard that 50% of students who go to seminary drop out. Really? I heard wow. this, and, and the reason is quite predictable. They've never read scripture carefully. So they've never noticed the outright contradictions or the things that they would have to actually personally have issue with, you know, like voting people, you know. So really, I just feel like I get that we need the faith. And for some people, if you're not sort of following the letter, although is it possible to exactly follow the letter when there are contradictions? But let's just say you can follow the letter, but somehow you are impure or it's a sin or it's against God. You, we really have to embrace that faith is also a personal journey. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I love what you said about gospel music, because I think a lot of people, you know, and I'm one of these people that, you know, I kind of grew up with the church, you know, grew up with gospel music. My dad loved gospel music and, you know, it, it brings a lot of comfort to me, even though I've kind of, you know, gone my own way away from Christianity as, you know, a religious construct, I still hold a lot of those beliefs, but I just, I couldn't see myself continuing to go to church, but I miss the gospel music. I miss the food afterwards, you know, the, the whole community, the sense of community that you have around it. And I think that that's something that a lot of Black people are losing because, you know, they're starting to grapple with a lot of these religious questions and so it's it's something else that's kind of scary I think for us you know it's not just you know isolation in the country it's also you know th this thing that's so important in the black community at least you know again in the south I'm I'm a southern black girl I can't speak to the northern experience but in the south at least it's such an integral part of growing up black hmm. in the south that you know leaving it behind you grieve it yeah. a lot yeah, a yeah. lot and you know bringing that gospel music into your home and and using that to process grief and you know other emotions that you might be feeling I think that's a beautiful idea I'm totally going to take that that is yours <laughs> that is yours to keep I saw someone tweeting about this someone said hey young black people if you left the church because of the hate mm -hmm. remember you still have the music that's yours yeah that's yeah. beautiful I love that I love that quote it's a great quote so let's talk a little bit about what you have been working on lately, aside from the reformatory. Oh my goodness. Um, we were, were sort of kidding, not even kidding, uh, before the recording about blessed and stressed. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the stressed part is easy to understand. Um, we're living under um, what uh, would be a would-be burgeoning dictatorship. Uh, with an election there's a lot of uncertainty about in terms of whether it will even happen legally um, in a, the way it should happen in a functioning democracy. We'll find out if we have a functioning democracy. So there's a, a big question about that coming up. There's a pandemic. The school year has just started virtually and all of the transitions with, with that, with our children at home. So we're working at home, we're schooling at home. We're af afraid to be around people because we have the sense enough to know that during a pandemic, it's not good to be around people you know right. <laughs> well, let's some not share have, germs <laughs> some of us have sense to know that um yeah so there's a lot of stress but on the other hand the blessings which unfortunately a lot of the blessings are even on the tail of stress because of black lives matter 
um, and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and just it goes on and on and on and on. Um, having to relive our trauma, you know, for me, Tamir Rice is sort of where my trauma rests, although Trayvon was, was also before that, but Tamir, especially as such a young boy, yeah. playing in a park and the way his sister was mishandled and handcuffed and couldn't yeah. even grieve properly, treated like an, an animal, frankly, yeah. which is how a lot of these police officers see us and our children. Um, but as a result of all that, there's been this wake-up call in Hollywood in particular. Now, I can't speak to every other industry, but Hollywood is really, really looking for Black projects right now. And again, like in the 90s, except hopefully in a lasting way. <laughs> right. But like in the 90s, it's like, oh, wait a minute. Black people like horror? Right. You know? <laughs> And let me tell you, it is a, there, my books, I've been really blessed that my books, several of them have been in and out of option since I started publishing in 1995, but I have never had so many works either under option or in the process of being optioned at one time as I do now. So I'm actively working on uh, two projects, soon to be four projects in terms of actively developing. Um, and then there are other, there are others swirling, you know, like pitches. I mean, people from very high places reaching out and saying, oh, I really enjoyed your short story collection, Go Summer. I'm like, word? It's <laughs> yeah. so good, though. It is so <laughs> good. <laughs> I mean, so it's, it's kind of a surreal time. Um, I'm, I'm trying not to take it for granted because I, I don't believe that this kind of level of energy can sustain. It will be oh, yeah. no. another flavor, another month. Um, and, and maybe without sort of the, the fear that we're about to descend into totalitarianism or whatever it is that Black people are expected to save the country from, um, maybe that interest will start to wane. But what doesn't wane, as long as we maintain a level of quality, will be the interest in the work itself. Because uh, I crowdfunded a short film called Danger Word in 2013. The director's Lucina Fisher starred Frankie Faison. Saoirse Scott is on YouTube at www.dangerword.com. And as a part of that crowdfunding campaign, this is back in 2013, we were making the argument for the subgenre called Black Horror. And it would be appealing to all horror fans because all horror fans like novelty. I will watch a horror film on Shudder from a, you know, in a foreign language, in a heartbeat. Oh, yeah. In a heartbeat before I'll watch almost anything else. You know, I just love horror. And if it's foreign, all the better in some ways, because that means that the mythologies and the tropes and the approach are going to be different and they're going to get yeah. a message in a different way. So, yeah. And it's like Asian horror, Black horror has a different kind of sensibility. It's not that we always have to be talking about Blackness. It's not like every story has to be like Last Stop on Route 9, which is literally where racism is the monster, the, the, that history that follows you, that racism is the monster. It doesn't have to be that. It's still revolutionary just to have Black people um, behaving intelligently mm -hmm. and, and, almost, and surviving a horror movie, you know, or, or right. even if they don't survive, like, like at least not going out, you know, like, you know, or <laughs> right. <laughs> yourself to save some white character, you know what I mean? It's like, for us to have agency and full status as characters in horror is new in film. There have been some examples in the past, but never in a sustained way. So I really feel like the black horror subgenre is going to cement itself. I just saw an announcement that Rusty Cundiff's uh, Tales from the Hood 3 is about to come out. Yeah, I saw that. I'm so right? excited about that. So, so excited. And, and there's another project I can't talk about I know is in the works uh, that would be a black horror project. Um, Candyman is about to come out soon. I don't know when, but Candyman it was supposed to have dropped, I think, by now. If there yeah, I think it was June that. that it was supposed to come out before. Um, Antebellum, which I haven't seen. Um, I've heard some mixed things about, to be honest, but, but I'm, I'm excited that it exists. And I think at this point, our job as Black creators is to be as sharp as we can, you know, to do the work, to, to write the scripts, first of all, because luck is opportunity meets preparation, you know, write the scripts, but make sure it's a good script. Make sure you have beta readers, uh, who are seasoned script readers 
who can tell you what's wrong with your script because there's always something wrong. There is always something wrong with your script. So, and if that means taking a screenwriting class, if you haven't done that, then yeah, I'm a self-taught screenwriter. So I'm not gonna stand up here and say everybody has to take a screenwriting class, but, but I've been studying it for a very, very long time. And my teachers were producers who were trying to adapt my work. So they really brought me along the way. And then I taught screenwriting in an MFA program, which was really the icing on the cake because I was both taking and teaching the courses. You know what I mean? Um, so that, so I, I really do believe though, that because it is such a different kind of writing that prose writers, have to almost retrain themselves to learn how to write with visual symbols instead of interior, you know, dialogue and knowing everything. It, 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 it takes a lot. It, the, the pitching component, the, the personal social component in Hollywood is very different than, than it is in prose writing. I mean, yeah, you might have to pitch your story to somebody, but it usually is in writing. It's a proposal, you know, you're not having to sit in front of a room and tell someone your story in, in a way that is exciting and engaging that they'll, based on a few notes, go to their boss and pitch it verbally to their boss. I, I was shocked at how little paper changes right. hands over these amounts of money. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was like, so wait, I'm going to tell you a story and then you're going to tell your boss a story and then y'all going to option this. <laughs> right. And all that happened was there was a sticky note somewhere in the process. Right. right. And that and not everyone can do that. There's a social component to pitching that is you can't do Hollywood without it. I mean, maybe if you have a partner who does all your your public face stuff, but for the most part, you will be on a Zoom with an executive with your heart pounding and your palms sweating, trying to act like your heart isn't pounding and your palms aren't sweating, while you try to casually tell this story so that they will like you, they'll feel like they would enjoy working with you. And they like your story. It's the whole package. Right. It's like a job interview and a query letter. Exactly. All rolled into one. All rolled into And it has nothing. It has very little to do with the creative process, yeah. uh, except for writing the pitch. But other than that, it's all showmanship. Right. Right. Well, I, for one, am glad that you are finally getting a lot of stuff produced. Um, I've said this for, since I started the podcast, that... I have not seen any of your stuff made into movies and that's a shame. I have not seen any of Octavia Butler's stuff made into movies. No, that one really that's a shame. It really <laughs> bothers me. I mean, I, I think there are a lot of projects that have benefited from the fact that we exist. Yes. You know, that, that are like sort of inspired, not directly, but in some ways by Octavia's work or by my oh, yeah. Um, so I guess I was, I can enjoy it in sort of like from a distance and I've always been cheering people on, but I knew, I knew when, when Get Out came out, then my day would come. Yeah. You know, I think like, a lot I'm of black be, writers I'm gonna did. I'm going to be patient because, and I'm going to cheer yeah. you. You got ahead of me, but good for you. Damn. I'm yeah. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I've been doing this since 1995. And, right. and you, know, you, new screenwriter, just came up. You know, I don't want to talk right. about you, but I'm talking about like some of the other newer screenwriters get their stuff made. But but adaptation is a whole thing. Yeah. yeah. So also one of the big lessons I've learned is write original scripts. Um, yeah. Writing IP, intellectual property that producers can option, and it has been a big boost for me. It has helped me get my foot in the door as far as I have but it was in writing an original horror script, which we have some producers shopping now and which will come out as a graphic novel. It's called The Keeper. And it's basically about a little black girl um, who's living with her grandmother uh, after she's orphaned, uh, which is an experience that a lot of our children have, even if they're not orphans um, and something goes wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it speaks to her vulnerability and it speaks to a choice she makes to survive. Uh, and that's all I'm gonna say. But we wrote that as an original script and it just, uh, being free from the adaptation process, free from all the chefs in the kitchen trying to tell you how to do this and do that from the executives was so liberating. And it's the best scripts I've ever written. And so once you've written the best script you've ever written, you draw on that lesson for every script you write in the future, including adaptations. You, you, you don't unlearn the lessons. Well, you know, that's a really good thing to hear because I think a lot of people feel like, you know, once they write their best thing ever, whatever it is they perceive as their best thing ever, they feel like they've peaked and that they should just hang up their hat and, you know, walk away because they can't do any better. 
than that. So it's really refreshing to hear someone say, I wrote the best thing I ever wrote and I'm using it to make everything else I write better. I think that's a lesson that a lot of writers can can take to heart and know that, you know, even if you do peak, you know, with your very first novel or your very first script, if that's the best thing that you ever write, that doesn't mean that your career is over. Yeah, it, it really can't for a screenwriter because, because so few scripts are produced. Let's just be real. So when you're writing a screenplay, of course, we like to think we're writing a movie or a template for a movie, but what we're actually writing most likely is a writing sample, period. That's, you know, and that's a hard thing for screenwriters to hear. But that writing sample has gotten us some amazing meetings. And we have met some powerful people. And like my husband, Stephen Barnes, always says, you can only have so many of those meetings before it results in a check. <laughs> right, <know>? exactly. <laughs> one day. So, so yeah, you just have to, and, and it's not ever about one script. And I tell this to my students all the time. I also teach prose writers, you know. It's great that you're working on this novel, but I'm trying to teach you uh, craft skills that will propel you through everything you write. I'm not super attached to this novel because you may be like me. You may get 200 pages in like I did when I was 23 and decide you're done with this novel. You know, you're bored with it. It's not what you thought it would be. And, and, but the skills can be applied to the next one, which is closer to who you are now and what you want to say now. It's just, unfortunately, novels take a long time to write, which is why I love the short story form and why I'm so glad you're doing this podcast. Uh, because not only are short stories such a great tool for learning writers, not that they're easy, they are not easy, they're very difficult, but but they don't take seven years to write like the reformatory did. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It was worth that seven years, right? I hope it, so. I, hope I cannot so. wait to see it. I'm really excited about it. Well, thank so, you. Before we ask for your recommendations for some black horror, I would like to ask you about Horror Noir, the documentary that's on Shudder that um, I believe you were listed as a producer. Executive producer. Executive producer. And, you know, obviously you appeared on it as an expert and shared um, your experience with black horror and your knowledge of black horror. Can you tell me what that was was like to, it, like, did you get the call to be on this? Is this something that you pitched to them how did that happen i feel so blessed and the posters behind me they can't see it but i feel so blessed to have been a part of it i i did not have to pitch it <laughs> that's amazing that's amazing. I did not they were pitching it probably maybe a year six months even or maybe before they came to me um and by the time they came to me they had already set it up at shutter so that's the way Honestly, I always want to roll in. Right? No kidding, right? You don't have to do any of the hard work. You just come in there and like, I yeah. no fan of the pitching process. I've got it down now. But but given a choice between having to pitch and not having to pitch, I'll always use not having to pitch. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I was teaching and still do. I teach a course at UCLA called The Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and the Black Horror Aesthetic. I also have an online version of that course it's not for credit that people can take at their own pace it's and a great course i took it just oh, great. letting everybody know i'm going to put a link to that in the show notes oh great www.sunkenplaceclass.com uh jordan peele even skyped in to uh to to do an interview with us for this the online version as well as came to ucla he's been to my class like three times maybe four uh just to appear and talk about get out but because that class kind of went viral when jordan peele surprised them um, I think that brought me to consciousness, even maybe more than my history as someone who's been publishing Black Horror since 1995. I, I thought it was kind of amusing that I was getting famous for being a teacher. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like I've been working my ass off this whole time writing I all these stories. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel horror noir has had a resurgence in, in this Black Lives Matter era too. A lot of people discovering it for the first time and the reaction to it has been so positive. That's the thing I wasn't expecting. It's a little scolding and chiding, you know, I was like, well, look with all these boxes you've been putting us in. But the horror community has embraced it like, oh, word, let's, you know, we need to change our ways. And I've been doing sensitivity reads for some writers who, you know, I think there's a lot more awareness that you need to have sensitivity readers for scripts that have black characters. I wish more 
would do that. There's a film I can think of. I'm not going to name that I wish. <laughs> has a star I greatly admire. She deserved better, is all I'm going to say. And I wish there had been a sensitivity reader uh, along the line to, to tell the studio, mm, if you're going to do this with a Black character, you need to you need to be aware of the optics of what right. this looks like. When the you sad insert- thing is, I can think about five shows. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you could be talking about right now yeah it, and, and you know and i'll talk about sleepy hollow which was the real thing that a lot of us uh, rallied around in season one um with nicole mahari starring co-starring but you know let's face it for us she was the star and it looks like a black horror series and we were so thrilled and i think the network was not thrilled that it looked like a black horror series and from that point on they were trying to make it not look like a black horror series and i think that's really went wrong with Sleepy Hollow is that it didn't have enough inclusivity in the room. There weren't enough black writers with power. Um, and it, it, it didn't, not only didn't appreciate what it had, it didn't even recognize what it had. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of shows have been in that place. You know, another one that comes to mind is the vampire diaries, you know, Bonnie Bennett. Oh, I know. There's this whole line of Bennett witches, right? So, you know, it's this, it was this teen drama, you know, vampires and there's witches and all manner of supernatural creatures. And um, she wasn't a a main character, you know, she was definitely a side character, but she, you know, descended from this long line of witches. Mm. And, you know, they did this spinoff of um, the original vampires. Um, and then another one that was like the original Vampire's Children was another spinoff that they did, but they never did a spinoff to explore Bonnie Bennett's history and like what it was like to, you know, be a witch. Like there was just so much there that they could have done with it and they just didn't. They just didn't. No, I, I, you know, I don't want to call his name because I don't know if he would appreciate me telling the story, but I worked with an actor years ago who had been on an ensemble show that was a hit show, um, back in the nineties. And his thing was he even talked to the writers it's like how come all the other characters have a home life and i don't you know and they basically were like well we don't know what a black home life looks like i'm like well all right then hire somebody who does come on this is easy somebody (laughs) who does or just start with the assumption that we're all human right even if it slightly misses the mark it's better than not addressing the fact that every character needs a home i love interest this is a thing with black men in particular well black women they can hook up with white men whenever but black men can't hook up with anybody you know what i mean uh and that has been like a long-standing trope with the isolated sexless black man and um you know it's 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 all this unconscious um uh, racial uh, competition behavior, you know, like hive mind, you know, mm-hmm. sort of emasculating and separating and like, you know, taking the women for yourselves and all this stuff. And I don't blame the actors, they're just trying to work. But thank goodness we are at a point now where more Black creators, marginalized creators are getting seats at the table. I cannot tell you how many people I just know in my circle you know, some former academics, you know, I worked with a Spellman. One, Ioka uh, Chinsera is getting op- directing opportunities because Ava let her direct a Queen Sugar and she's taken off since then, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of my other colleagues who used to teach screenwriting at Spellman is, is staffed on a, a show I like, you know, and, and another woman I know who's been trying to get in for years is staffed. I mean, people are getting staffed on these shows. Um, if Sleepy Hollow had come out now, it would have been such a stronger show. So you know? different. Yeah, yeah, much so better, different. much better. It was just a little bit ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. The model had not started to shift enough for that show to thrive. Yeah. And what's sad is there's so many reboots that are happening right now that, you know, like I'm not a fan of reboots by original material. Let's see original stuff. But I would really love to see that show come back and <sighs> With for them to do it justice, <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, we'll always have season one. You yes. know, and I have to say that season finale with the Mala Stenberg levitating and the red clay dirt dust they threw to try to keep the demons out. I, yep. I was like almost lifted out of my skin. I know that felt like home to me because I come, you know, <laughs> I come from South, there's red clay where I come from. And, right? you know, that there's this whole hoodoo thing. And I don't know if this was a thing um, where you grew up, but in hoodoo, red brick dust, at least where I grew up, was a big thing that you use for protection. You get right. red brick dust and you'd line your doors and windows and that type of thing or you could you know make um 
a jar, you know, they just call it work mm-hmm. and or root and put it in the jar with some other stuff, depending on what you were trying to do and bury it under a porch and, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. So seeing that kind of stuff just makes me feel like I'm home. It did. And, it was so know. beautiful. It was for an instant, but, but you know, I will always give it credit for at least that like black, bright flaring light for yes. like that one season to kind of point the way to what you, what can be accomplished. And now we're going to see it with more regularity. Lovecraft Country is one example, but there will be other Black Horror series. There's Absolutely. room for more than one. That's the beauty of it. Absolutely. So let's talk about then while we close out um, this interview, which makes me really sad because I have so much stuff that I would love to talk to you about, but we're running out of time. Can you give us, I don't know, three or four books, films, podcasts, whatever it is, whatever floats your boat, by Black writers, Black horror, that you would say are must read, must watch, must listen? Okay. Um, must read is free online from Tor.com. It's called a novelette because it's sort of an odd length, but mm-hmm. it's called The Devil in America mm. by Kai Ashanti Wilson. K-A-I Ashanti, A-S-H-A-N-T-E Wilson. And I do not scare easily. But when I was reading that for the first time outside in my backyard by myself, I was jumping at noises. <laughs> and it's one of, it's so brilliant. It's nonlinear. It's a little complex in terms of its structure. So it's not a traditional story the way it's structured. But if you stick with it, trust and believe. Um, that is a scary, scary story. Um, I would also recommend um, actually anthologies. Um, and one of them would be one called Searching for Cigarettes. Oh, Black yeah. Hauntings of Contemporary Horror, which is um, edited by Kenitra, uh, Dr. Kenitra Brooks, is one of the co-editors. And actually, there are three, and I want to name everybody. All right, Searching for Cigarettes. Oh, and no, the one I'm thinking of is Cigarettes' Daughters. Okay, but both of them. Oh, yeah, the Searching for Cigarettes is a nonfiction book, That's and Cigarettes' Daughters is yeah, a both of, them, of short fiction. Cigarettes' Daughters is right. That one is the one where Linda Addison, um, mm-hmm. Brooks, and uh, Susanna Morris, now the names of yes. uh, all were co-editors. And um, really, you know, those are huge. And I know you only said three, but I would be remiss not to mention Horror Noir, the book of course. by Dr. Robin Armines Coleman, yes, which is the absolute foundation of that um, documentary. We couldn't even really do it justice because we would have needed a much longer documentary to really dig into every era of oh, horror yeah. he does with such um, creativity and intelligence. But that book, listen, that's it. Those are the ones. Those are my. Those are my suggestions. Excellent. I think those are wonderful suggestions. Those, I have not read The Devil in America. I'm excited to go. Girl. Give that one a read. You think after you read it. All right. I will. I will. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, well, thank you for Before doing we hang up and all of that, tell us, is there anything of yours that we can go out and do and support you right now? Well, I guess the main thing is for people, you know, who enjoy talking about horror literature and film, it would be check out the Black Horror Class at www.sunkenplaceclass.com. I'm proud of it. And with the Halloween season gearing up, I think it's a it's a good gift as well. I agree. I agree. Thank you so much for joining us, Tanana Reeve. It's been wonderful having you. Great talking to you and best of luck with this amazing podcast. Thank you so much. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.